Hey guys, welcome to True Knows Talk. Jeff here. I don't know if y'all have heard of Anchor, but it's ran by Spotify now. And it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one app or on your desktop. Anchor has the tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone and computer. And really, I mean, when hosting on Anchor, you you mean you can distribute your podcast on many platforms. Spotify, Apple, I mean, there's just tons of them, more than I have time to really explain. But the best part about it, really, everything you need is in one place, and it's free. So, guys, go to your app store, download the Anchor FM app, or go online and just put it on your desktop if you got a laptop. Now, I know Chip and Hunter, just like I am, we're ready to kick this thing off. So, y'all can give us the countdown, and we'll see y'all when the show starts. Well, hello everyone. You know, uh, welcome to another edition of uh, True Knows Talk. Y'all know who I am. Let me introduce Hunter as always. Um, today we continue our Back to the Future series, you know, by focusing on our beloved Knowles in the 1950s. Um, in the decade uh, following World War II, Americans really enjoyed, you know, a thriving economy, you know, more than what we got now. Uh, and access to a range of new time-saving technologies. I mean, Hunter, I mean, the invention of the transistor radio, the Barbie doll, radial tires. I mean, the first issue of uh, Sports Illustrated was actually published August 16th of 54. And then, you know, the creation in the, uh, of the credit card, which gave people more money to spend and an access of leisure time. You know, people turned to sports and recreation and entertainment. Baseball in the 50s, you know, arguably reigned supreme, but other sports competed for a nation's attention. Television's increasing popularity during the 50s and a dramatic impact on sports. Although TV was first developed in the 30s, aggressive marketing, new technology, you know, didn't begin until, you know, after the war's end. 
in 46, you know, there were fewer than 17,000 television sets in the whole United States. Um, <clears throat> three years later, you know, consumers were buying sets at a rate of 250,000 a month. You know, the buying frenzy continued through the 50s and 60s. Um, really, you know, family, everybody owned a TV then. And so it was easier to watch sporting events like bowling and college football games and bowl games, you know, just sitting in your family room and creating, you know, a new generation of diehard fans. You know, there were some stellar teams, you know, history making sports events, you know, to grab the public's attention. Um, you know, in the 50s, female tennis wonder, Althea Gibson became the first black player um, to win a U.S. national uh, championship. Gibson went on to win a singles title, U.S. championship in 57 and 58 and five Grand Slam titles over that time. And of course, you know, the decade, that was, that was when the Yankees just were dominant. They won eight American League pennants and six World Series. You know, and you think of the players, Ted Williams, Yogi Berra, Mickey Mantle, Ernie Banks, um, Hank Aaron, and, you know, just a list of them. But October 3rd, 51, marked the first coast-to-coast -coast televised baseball event also as the New York Giants, Bob Thompson hit a home run that become known as the shot heard around the world. Uh, in September 55, America turned in to watch, tuned in to watch, you know, Rocky Marciano defend his heavyweight boxing championship. You know, in the 50s, in 1950, the L.A. Rams uh, became the first team in NFL history to arrange for all their games, both home and away, to be televised. Um Chuck Cooper was drafted by the Boston Celtics in the 50s, earning the first title for – well, he earned the title for the first black player ever to play in the NBA. Um, other than that, I mean, that's pretty impressive just for that time frame. Hunter, I mean, you got anything to say? Yeah, you know, back then, it's, you know, well, given the fact that I'm significantly younger than you, it was way before my time. So, um, it's it's amazing how far technology and, you know, everything has came – you think about back then, you know, the credit card was just coming out and now I've got my credit card debit cards on my phone where all I got to do is just scan it. Boom. It, it's yeah. amazing. You know, and even the TV sets, what that was then compared to what they are today. I don't have cable. I have internet provider and I stream everything. So it's, it's amazing to think about in really a short period of history, how far we've really came and sort of getting back to, you know, the, the sports aspect of thing. You know, in college football, the Oklahoma Sooners at that time, they won three national championships over that decade. Um, that team was undefeated from 53 to 57. But the year 1950 was very important for Florida State University football. You know, this was a year that FSU moved into Doak Campbell Stadium and had its first ever undefeated season. Um, the team was a member of the small school, low-key Dixie Conference, which did not allow uh, members to provide athletic scholarships. But fans have already began, you know, to dream of the days where Seminoles might develop its program into one of the big-time statures. Um, in 1951, we celebrated our first national championship at FSU at a meet in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, Florida State's gymnastics team won the first ever NCAA championship by a team from the state of Florida in any sport. They also won the AAU national championship held in Detroit <clears throat> that same year. Uh, in the following summer, uh, I'm going to mess it up. I mess it up every time. Rotsheim, representative of the United States at the uh, first Pan-American game in Buenos Aires, Argentina, where he not only won first place in the horizontal bar competition, but also won the overall gymnastics individual championship. 
And in 52, the FSU team repeated as NCAA champions. You know, that summer, FSU gymnast Bill Rotsheim and Don Holder competed as members of the U.S. team at the Olympic Games in Helsinki, Finland. Uh, FSU remained very competitive at the national NCAA meet through 1959. Uh, the Seminoles won two more national AAU championships in 53 and 55. And a special note was the FSU's team competition against national teams from other countries. Uh, in 54, in Tallahassee, we actually took on the world champion Swedish national team and defeated them. Uh, then the Seminoles repeated the following year when the touring Swedish team came back to Tallahassee. And in 56, the FSU team traveled to Havana and beat Cuba's national team. Well, that's, that's kind of impressive, you know, to think. Mm -hmm. That was our first ever national title. And another thing about that team and the coach that was brought in for gymnastics, he actually created a club. I've done some research through it. You know, me and you both researched all the decades real thorough. But he started a club, and there's actually a video on YouTube, but I can't find it right now, that it was called the, I want to say the Tallahassee Tumblers. And it was a bunch of kids at the, what is now the Tallahassee, like, YMCA, and they would learn gymnastics then through him and all that. But, you know, the football season also began with a lot of positive enthusiasm and high hopes. Head coach Von, or Don Valor, you know, had come on board in 48, and in his first two seasons with the team, I think he registered like, I mean, registered records of like seven wins, one loss, nine wins and one loss. You know, in 49 uh, season, he'd been, had, you know, he had closed out with an amazing 1906 victory over previously beaten in a small college powerhouse, you know, Wofford in the Cigar Bowl. Um, in addition, you know, thanks to some strong hometown support, FSU's new Dope Campbell Stadium was, you know, being built and the team would be moving in, you know, soon. You know, the team began the 1950 season um, led by third-year head coach uh, Don Veller, who started a, you know, a resounding victory on the road against a team that's really just right up the road from where I live, Troy University now, but it was Troy State then, and beat, defeated them 26-7 to and finished – the season a perfect eight and but Hunter, I got a question. All right, do you know? Do you know who the quarterback was for the visiting team in the first game ever played by FSU at Doe Campbell Stadium that year? Even though I've did my research, I do not. Who was it? Okay, turning out for the event were nine thousand six hundred seventy-six fans. That's a far cry from. That was about the Willie Taggart era numbers. Yeah, I was going to say, remember that Duke game we went to? Oh, dear God. No. <laughs> the Boise State game from, I think, 19 was worse. By halftime, there were probably was 200 fans in the stands. But yeah. that was actually, you know, the 9,676 was actually a new attendance record at Florida State for, for games. Uh, but two weeks later at Doe Campbell Stadium, you know, FS, FSU earned a hard-fought 20-6 victory over Howard College known now as Samford University. The same school that FSU will open, well, at that time, you know, I won't say we play them again in a couple of years, but uh, the uh, quarterback for that one was Bobby Bowden. Really? Yes. Bobby Bowden, uh, 
was the quarterback, and I think he had a a great, I mean, a pretty good little career. I mean, the game was good, except for I think one little incident with him. Like I think, I think he threw an, a uh, <clears throat> a uh, interception or something that cost him the game or something. But just to think, I mean, the man played against Florida State back in the fifties, and later the field, I believe it was like two thousand four nine something like that, would be named after him. I mean, just just think, you know. And the more we got dive into these decades. People don't realize how much Bobby was a part of this program through the, I mean, playing against them. I mean, we all know his coaching accolades. But um, that game versus uh, Howard or Sanford, really, uh, determined the Dixie Conference champion that year. So. That's That's just a tidbit of knowledge about, you know, it's just astonishing how much you learn through that. But Hunter, I mean, that was a pretty impressive. I mean, who to think that the, you know, Doe Campbell, the first game played there, our, you know, the godfather himself is the quarterback against us. Yeah, and actually, I will say this: I didn't put two and two together. I knew that he was the quarterback at Sanford, but I didn't realize that Sanford was named Howard College before it was known as Sanford. So that that's where you got me at on that one. Yep. Yep. Um, but carrying on, I mean, Hunter, I mean, is there anything about that that year or that time frame that sticks out to you? Yeah, you know, and actually in the fourth uh, the fourth game that year, um, there was some major happenings going on at Florida State, and that's uh, that's when it was actually announced from that point forward that they, uh, our band would be named the Marching Chiefs. And, uh, you know, for the first time ever at a football game, the band introduced FSU's new fight song, um, the music had been written by music professor Tommy Wright and the lyrics by student Doug Allen. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, but yeah, the, the eighth and last game of 1950 season was uh, especially you know memorable. It was 16 degrees and the wind was blowing. There were long icicles hanging from the water towers in view from Doe Campbell Stadium. Uh, at halftime, you know, Coach Veller took the team into the team's bus where it was parked at the stadium and turned on the heaters because the team room in the new stadium was not warm enough. Uh, but in any event, you know, FSU beat Tampa on 35-19 uh, to 19 to complete a perfect season. Another special thing happened during that game. FSU's Tommy Brown had an 84-yard punt. The ball went over the defensive back's head and just kept bouncing and rolling and rolling on the frozen ground. The 1950 team turned down an invitation to play against – or play again in the Cigar Bowl. Uh, the year before, the team had expected to – uh, received commemorative watches for playing in the bowl. Instead, they got a miniature rubber toy football. Uh, it had left a bad taste in their mouth. And in addition, since they had no scholarships to play football, many of the players had Christmas jobs that allowed them to take some much-needed money for school. Um, they voted against a return trip to Tampa, and that concluded one of FSU football's most interesting seasons. Now, you know, I- I'm from West Virginia. You know, I'm used to the cold. I'm used to the teens. I'm used to below zero. I'm used to, you know, used to ice. But could you imagine how cold it was in? Because Florida is a completely different kind of cold than up north. Yeah. Could you imagine being at that game, ice was hanging off the tower, and you just see the team walk out, and you're like, what are they doing? <laughs> They're going to get warm. So I'm sure that was very cold. But, you know, imagine just being there for that that punt, you know, and just watching it just roll and roll and roll across that frozen field. That There's been a lot of memorable moments in Florida State history. And to me, that's one of the first. But as we get further into the series, we'll get to see 
more and more uh, better memorable moments as well. Yeah. And one thing about it, you know, Doak Campbell Stadium, when it was first built, it wasn't a, a the shape it is now. It was just a home side, a visitor side, and both end zones were open behind it. So, I mean, really, if it would have kept bouncing, I mean, Lord knows how many yards that would have been. It could have been like Forrest Gump running out of the stadium. Yeah. And another thing about, you know, I read about the Cigar Bowl, and a bunch of the players back in that time were upset about this. This is why they voted against a return trip, is when they were giving them little rubber footballs as a, a trophy. They were – I read it on a, in a story on a, that was done back in – probably about 10, 15 years ago, those players went to a gas station on their way out of Tampa, and those same footballs were on sale. Really? In the gas station, yes. So that tells you just, you know, nothing against Tampa, but, yeah, that shows you just how much disrespect Florida State was getting back in that day, really. But, you know, carrying on, you know, Coach Tom Nugent was named to replace uh, Don Veller as head football coach in 1953. Uh, Seminole fans of later years that grew to adore, you know, Peter Petersonese, which is Coach Bill Peterson's vocabulary, and his aerial circus on the gridiron, or those that fell in love with the southern charm later of Bobby Bowden, you know, along with his riverboat gambling uh, on the football field, would have equally embraced Nugent. Uh, he was an innovator. He was, you know, being credited with the invention of the typewriter I offense. I never heard of that. Um, he was a showman. Uh, he was a uh, kind of a taskmaster. He, he was a communicator. Uh, Nugent wasted no time, though, making his presence felt at the University uh, of Florida. You know, Nugent's first task was to grab a bigger slice of the revenue and he started to lobby legislators and within two years uh, had convinced oh, had convinced uh, them to take almost a quarter of a million dollars away from the University of Florida and give it to Florida State. Um, he made progress on the football field also. The FSU football's schedule not only featured many major college school, schools, but the Seminoles were starting to win those games. Florida State went 5-5 five and five in 1953, but Two of those victories were against major colleges. They defeated North Carolina State 59 to nothing and defeated a Louisville team, which at that time was quarterbacked by a, I mean, god of a quarterback, Hall of Famer Johnny Unitas. I mean, to think that, you know, we could defeat Louisville, you know, who's led by arguably one of the best quarterbacks ever to play in that era. Um, which, you know, that was the year, you know, we kind of established ourselves as a major football program. Uh, the Seminoles would lose their their first two games of the season, but then proceeded to win eight of their next nine on the way to an eight and three season and logged an invitation to the Sun Bowl. The Sun Bowl invitation marked uh, the first time the team, a team from Florida participated in a bowl outside the boundaries of that state. You know, and it's crazy to think, really, Hunter. I mean, just looking back at that time, Florida State University had only been in existence for four years. Yeah. Yet in that period, you know, they had won, what, three conference championships, invited to participate in, in multiple bowl games, uh, recorded a perfect season. And, you know, the University of Florida at that time 
you know, they've been playing football for 44 years and had never been invited to participate in a bowl game, had never posted a perfect season, had never won a conference championship, not in their, you know, 11 years of the SEC, nor in their 17 years as a member of that conference. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny to think that even though four years we were rising up, you know, I remember an old old video we used to watch at work, uh, you know, the cream rises to the top. And, um, and the old, you know, gators were still, you know, like catfish sucking on the mud at the bottom of the swamp. I mean, yeah, no, wonder there, no wonder there was yeah. some animosity. Yeah, and, you know, Florida State's achievements, they were not going unnoticed in Gainesville either. Um, you know, Florida State earned a 6-2 and two record during the 51 season, but the highlight of the season was uh, was a loss, a 35-13 loss to the University of Miami, the, uh, the first major college team to appear on a Florida State football schedule. Uh, the Seminoles would only win one game in 52 while losing eight and tying one. The schedule, however, was continuing to be upgraded, and four major college teams appeared on the 52 slate. Uh, coach Veller, citing a distaste for recruiting, stepped down as football coach after the season. Yet, even with the, you know, on the field setbacks, the program was moving towards major college, you know, status. And idle chit chat began to service about a game against the University of Florida. Uh, the events of 1953 and 54 football season would turn that idle chit chat into demands that Florida and Florida State meet on the football field. Uh, you know, Florida State still attains major college status. I mean, my question is, though, you know, with the animosity with Florida State and uh, Florida State and Florida back then, I mean, so who made the decision and ordered Florida, to, you know, to play us? You know, just yes. finally, you know, step up. Yeah, so, you know, at this point, Governor Leroy Collins entered the fray, and uh, Governor Collins had been outraged that a bill had even been placed on the floor of the Senate. He believed that the state legislature had more important things to do than schedule football games. Uh, his outrage intensified to extreme anger when he learned that as many as three other bills were in the process of being written. He summoned both presidents to the governor's mansion for a meeting. Uh, and there's no official documents of what was said in that meeting, but whatever was said, it worked. Uh, could you imagine being a president of university and getting called to the principal's office about a ball game? Man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know. I, I, would, I wouldn't. I don't even know how I'd answer that one. I'd be underneath the desk or something, you know, uh, scared to even walk in. Or That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of funny looking back now, you know, just the magnitude of a football game got the governor's attention in a meeting with him. Um, well, but you, the, mag the magnitude of a football game, got three bills in the process of being put on the Senate floor. Yeah. That's, that's what's, a, a, you know, crazy and just mind boggling, you know? Yeah. But you know, within a matter of a few weeks, the presence of both Florida state and Florida, uh, they appeared before the border control and asked the board to initiate action that will result in the two schools uh, competing against each other in all sports, not just football. Uh, a game was close, but it still wasn't official yet. You know, the board turned the situation over to the athletic department of both schools to finalize everything. Despite numerous meetings, nothing being concluded and uh, negotiated, negotiations, excuse me, they dragged on for another six months. Uh, finally, as still angry and now agitated, Governor Collins ordered both President Campbell of Florida State and the President of Florida to return to Tallahassee to meet with him and the Board of Control. Now, 
I imagine the first meeting was bad enough, but could you imagine the second meeting? But oh, what would have been fly on the wall? <clears throat> That'd be like going to the, I mean, we both worked, you know, Department of Corrections. That'd be like going to the colonel's office and getting a little, you know, better do better. And then the next time you walk in there for the same thing and there's the warden sitting there, you know. Yeah, Whew. that'd be a bad day. But anyways, um, you know, Collins, he'd later be quoting on saying, there are some things that are better off not being mentioned in the sunshine when he was asked why the meeting was behind locked doors. And that kind of goes back to what you said. You know, the only thing known for certain is that when the meeting ended, the Border Control announced that Florida will play Florida State in football next year. And it would later be determined that the University of Florida did indeed have some contractual issues and they were granted a grace period from the Border Control and they were ordered to play us in 58. Yeah. I mean, isn't there, I mean, there's a bunch of people that believes are still thing there. I mean, is there any, I mean, what's fact and what's fiction on that? All right, so fiction, there was never a law enacted that ordered Florida to play Florida State in football. But the fact is, the State Board of Control ordered Florida to play Florida State in football. Oh, well. I mean, you know, Florida didn't have much success, you know, in the SEC then. And, you know, really, I mean, the Knowles would have, you know, a victory over an SEC team, you know, by the end of that decade. Um, but it wouldn't be Florida. Um, the Seminoles went to Knoxville uh, and beat – the University of Tennessee, 10 to nothing, and FSU's first victory over an SEC team. Uh, this game had been given major news attention in that the two schools had brothers opposing each other at quarterback. FSU's uh, two main quarterbacks were Vic Frenzy and uh, Majors, while Majors' brother Billy, you know, was one of the Tennessee quarterbacks. Both of FSU's quarterbacks had good games, but unfortunately, you know, Billy Majors, he, he got injured early in the game. You know, he didn't play after that. The main star of the game, however, was um, FSU running back uh, Fred uh, Pinkard. Uh, Pinkard had, was from Columbus, Tennessee, uh, but had a field day, you know, carrying the ball 22 times. I think he had like 133 yards when I looked it up. But his accomplishments was even more, you know, enjoyable to FSU fans since uh, he had not been recruited by the University of Tennessee as he was believed, you know, too small for the volunteers and weighed less than I think it was like 140 pounds as a high school star. This day and age, that kid would have got killed. I mean, he would be lucky to be the water boy now. I'm telling you, yeah. But, you know, um, it was also Florida State's first time beating Miami. On November 7, 1958, we defeated the Hurricanes 17-6. to um, And it was our first victory over a team after five straight losses. Uh, you know, Majors, he started FSU scoring in the game by intercepting a Miami pass and running it back 42 yards for a touchdown. Uh, Majors played safety on defense as the uh, limited substitution rule of those days forced players to play offense and defense. For the last regular season game on November 22nd, 58, FSU went to Gainesville and played the Gators for the first time in the modern era of football. While the Seminoles did not win the game, they played competitively, losing 7-21, to and accomplished a long-time quest to play the Gators that even included activities in the governor's office and, of course, you know, the legislature. Uh, the two teams have played ever since. While Vic Prinzi started the game at quarterback, Joe Majors led the team uh, gallantly after Prinzi was injured in the, in the game. Uh, in 1958, regular season record of 7-3 and brought Florida State an invitation to play in the Bluegrass Bowl at Louisville, Kentucky. 
While the game played on a frozen turf was rather dull and FSU lost 6-15, to it was nevertheless a big deal. It was the first time that FSU played before a national audience as the game was televised throughout the country by the American Broadcast Company. Uh, another little nugget about that game was that two rather famous television personalities described that game. Harry Wismer did the play-by-play, and Howard Cassell, then a beginning broadcaster, did the color work. Oh, wow. I mean, Hunter, I mean, looking back at the decade, and there was, I mean, not many notable names, really, that you could think of that played. You know, there was a few. But um, was there anybody, you know, that stood out to you? I mean, I know two that I can name, you know, in my mind. But, you know, what about you? Yeah, I have a couple as well. Um, you know, Bobby Wren and Tom Feimster. Uh, Bobby Wren, during the early years of football's program existence, his records are quite easy to break. That's something that Bobby, Bobby, excuse me, Bobby Wren took full advantage of during his time at the Seminoles. Wren, who hailed from Henderson, North Carolina, was a major multi-year contributor at Florida State from 56 through 58. And while at FSU, he did a little bit of everything. He played running back, receiver, quarterback, defensive back, kick return, punt return, and he also punted for the Seminoles. Uh, the man of many hats was predominantly a running back. And by the time his FSU career was over, uh, he was the program's career leader in points, 99, touchdown 16. Uh, he had 1,455 rushing yards, and he punted for 3,487 yards, averaging almost 40 yards per punt. Uh, for his effort, Rim was named a UPI All-American Honorable Mention in 58, and he was inducted to the FSU Hall of Fame in 84. Wow. And it, yeah. And then we have, you know, Tom Feimster. He's not a long ago FSU alumni, and he can uh, claim a historic first in program history. After a prestigious all-around career at Florida State, Feimster began, or excuse me, he became the first Seminole to play in the NFL in 56. Um, as a Seminole, Feimster was a do-it-all player, most known for his impact as a wide receiver. He set program records with 442 receiving yards and six receiving touchdowns in 1953. Uh, he also played defensive end and did some kicking for the Knowles. He earned an All-American honorable mention from the Williamson Middle Group in 1954. And after his FSU career, the Newport News Virginia native was drafted in the fourth round of the 55 draft, 40th overall by the LA Rams. However, he played his only NFL season in 56 with the Baltimore Colts, playing defensive end and kicking. While his NFL career was a brief one, Feimster can claim himself as the first in a long line of Seminoles who were selected in the NFL draft. Well, that's crazy. Especially Wren, you know, the, you, you mentioned, you know, Wren and his, his punting yards, like over 3,000 yards punting the ball. I mean, that's, that's well, if you look at somebody's four-year career and he punts the, yard, the ball that many times, that kind of says something about your offense too. Yeah. Yeah, you know. But, you know, I like both those guys, you know. But one of my picks, you know, he didn't play on the gridiron. He played on the diamond. You know, and the stadium's named after him. Um, and that's Dick Hauser. He played shortstop for the Knowles uh, through 55, uh, 55 through 58. Uh, he loved baseball. He loved life and FSU. You know, probably not necessarily in that order, you know. But um, he was FSU's first All-American baseball player. He was on FSU's first three NCAA postseason tournament teams, including the 57 team that won the regional and made FSU's first trip to the College World Series. I mean, he had a lifetime of career in baseball. You know, after college, he made it to the major leagues, 
played for uh, Kansas City Athletics at the time, the Cleveland Indians, the New York Yankees. Uh, he was third base coach for the Ra- for the Yankees, uh, and uh, I want to say he's head coach also of the Yankees and the Kansas City Royals. And his his Kansas City team won the World Series in '85, and it's no wonder, you know, looking back at his career and all that, why they named that stadium after him. But my second one, I guess, you know, he contributed to Florida State a lot, and um, I guess, I mean, I got a video that's really will break it down and who my next one is. I mean, you ready to watch it, Hunter? Let's watch it. In 1954, a highly recruited freshman running back named Buddy Reynolds showed tremendous potential, gaining 33 yards on a pass reception against Georgia in his first action. He would gain 134 rushing yards over the first half of the 1954 season before a serious knee injury sidelined him for the next two seasons. He turned to acting and would become one of the biggest box office draws in Hollywood history. We're getting up a football game against the guards. Bandit, me and my son are here. (laughs) All the while, Burt Reynolds championed his beloved FSU, sneaking references to the school in movies and television programs. You're not saying that football is not important. I'm saying that football ain't nothing but a game. (laughs) Coach, don't you tell my alumni. (laughs) He returned frequently to campus and even co-hosted segments on the Bobby Bowden TV show. Burt Reynolds loved his Florida State teammates, loved his association with Seminole football, and loved Florida State. When the final history of how Florida State University and its athletic program is written, the Hollywood sensation with the million dollar smile and good old boy charm will once again have a leading role. Just I could be there to shake hands with everybody, but you know where my heart is. It's with you. Have a great year. Well, I mean, there was another thing. I mean, Hunter, do you know another thing Burt Reynolds contributed to the University of Florida State? No, I don't, but I do want to say one thing. You know, right after Burt's passing, I was there. Um, I could even share a photo to the group uh, where the, the marching chiefs actually spelled out his name in midfield, and they played the fight song. And then, of course, you know, now it's sort of become a – I wouldn't say quite a story tradition yet because it hasn't been going on long enough, but, you know, at every home game you go to, they play eastbound and down, you know, symbolizing his role as the bandit. And uh, they always have a video of him up on the video board. So they they, they did Burt justice. Now back to your point, um, I don't. Well, I mean, Burt Reynolds, I mean, was a longtime supporter of FSU even after his playing days. But, you know, he passed away at age 82. You know, he'll be missed. But before finding fame in Hollywood, you know, he played fullback, you know, for the team in the mid-50s, even though his playing days were cut, you know, he found a way to give back to the athletic program, including the team's look on the field. In the late 70s, Coach Bowden and Burt Reynolds, you know, they kind of got together and designed the arrow helmet we all know today. Um, Prior to design, the helmet was either like one solid color with a stripe, uh, which kind of included their number or whatever, or just the initials or the outline of the state. 
but back to back Orange Bowl law or yeah, Orange Bowl losses in seventy nine and eighty, you know, spurred Reynolds to make a change. Um, according to the University Athletic Department, you know, he went to a Hollywood costume designer, and together the two, you know, they changed the jerseys, and then they sent a crate to Tallahassee with a note addressed to Bobby Bowden, and the note said, "If you like them, wear them." You know, and they had gold pants. You know, it was not to like. But the gold pants, you know, they were called Notre Dame gold, you know, and it was the first time that they had new uniforms in a while. The specific garnet gold combination from that time and into the 80s and what we know now is just the, the classic FSU look, you know, was all brought, you know, by um, Burt Reynolds. You know, if it wasn't for him, you know, we may not have the spear on the helmet now or the, the garnet gold, you know, what we know now is our normal home attire. But um, I guess that kind of covered all the Seminole greats. I mean, am I right, Hunter? I don't know about that, Jeff. I don't know. I'm going to say one line, and when I say this one line, you're going to know exactly who I'm talking about. Not so fast, my friend. Uh, you know, if you don't know, we're talking about Lee Corso. You should know, but if you don't know, it's Lee Corso. And, uh, you know, Lee Corso on and off the field, he was a runaway for the number one uh, for the best and biggest FSU football player from the program's first two decades of existence. Uh, you know, Corso was one of the most highly regarded recruits in program history upon his arrival in Tallahassee and in, uh, that was in 53. But from early in his time at FSU, the Miami native lived up to the hype. You know, his impact on either side of the ball alone would earn him a spot on that list. Uh, offensively, Corso ran for 1,267 yards and had 409 receiving yards and he, he threw for 527 more through his FSU tenure. Um, and he accounted for 18 offensive touchdowns. You know, FSU's running back Lee Corso, who had gone on to a prestigious career with ESPN, was one of the many Seminoles who helped lay the groundwork for the program in the 1950s. On um, special teams, he had 808 kick and punt return yards at FSU and made all five PATs he attempted as a kicker. However, it's Corso's defensive impact that stands out, you know, the biggest. Uh, playing defensive back, Corso had at least two interceptions in each of his four years at Florida State. He finished his collegiate career with 14 interceptions, and today that remains tied with Deion Sanders for the third most in program history. Um, Corso earned an AP All-American honorable mention as a senior in 56 and was part of the second FSU Hall of Fame class in 78. He started his coaching career as assistant at FSU and peaked as a head coach at Louisville in Indiana. Um, he's you know, but nowadays he's best known for one of his most prominent college football uh, personalities on TV. He's been an analyst on ESPN's College Game Day since 1987. Well, oh, Corso. You know, there was a story, uh, I think I told you, you know, he was coaching at Louisville. I can't remember who he was playing at the time, but it was on th around Thanksgiving. And he was a jokester when he was coaching at Louisville. And he sent one of his players out for the coin toss with, I want to say it was a turkey. Yeah. In his hand. And uh, when the when they asked him, you know, why do you got the turkey? Uh, and he looked at him, he told the player to tell him, you know, do you want the ball or you want the turkey? You know, that tells you just how much of a jokester yeah. uh, he is. But, um, Hunter, I mean, I believe that's going to wrap the show up. I mean, it was pretty good. I mean, I look forward to the 60s. Um Next week's show, I mean, you got any final thoughts? Yeah, you know, I, I think I mentioned last week, um, you got to look at the history before you look at the future. So, 
you know, this is kind of the down part of the season, you know, softball, baseball is kind of, kind of wrapping up. So we wanted to, you know, sort of do a, a series and we're, we're really looking forward to some possible things in the future. Uh, we've, we've kicked around ideas and we've been in talks about it, but uh, you know, we spoke Tuesday on the girls hosting uh, the regionals here on their home turf. Uh, they won the regionals. Congratulations to them. And uh, y'all be sure to tune in to a uh, Florida state softball night at seven 30 on ACC network. Yeah. I mean, as y'all can see right above my head, this is previously recorded because we recorded this a little early. I've got some obligations. Hunter, you know, we're going to be watching the Noah softball. So at our normal time, you know, so we want to focus on them. So that's why we previously recorded this, but guys, to all the new members and former Knowles, welcome to the group. Um, enjoy having you here. Uh, go out and invite your other friends, other teammates. You know, it's always great to have Knowles that's played on Dope Campbell's, uh, in Dope Campbell Stadium, Bobby Brown Field, you know, in our group and helping us move, you know, continuing to climb. But um, with that being said, guys, we're just going to sign off. Go Knowles and have a great weekend. Touchdown, Florida State! He's got PK Sam open! He makes the catch! Yeah. Touchdown!